everyone, and welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to a chapter-by-chapter review of Stephen King's The Stand. Need an affordable source for Stephen King books, movies, collectibles, and more? Make sure to visit Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Listeners of this podcast can use the coupon code THECIRCLE for 20% off their order at any time, and shipping is always free within the United States. Again, that's Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Happy Saturday, everybody. As usual, I am Sarah, and I want to welcome you back to this journey through the stand. It has been kind of a crazy week personally, and I'm not going to get into that, but um, I also don't have a lot of King-related news to share at the moment. So instead, I'm just going to take a quick second to say thank you to everyone who has since uh, left me a review or have emailed me to talk about the podcast. I always appreciate the feedback, and I always love talking King with other fans. Um, And a special shout out to Jordan, Melissa, and Teresa for your very kind words. I appreciate all of them. Um, And since I don't have much news to go over today, I thought that today would just be one of those episodes where we just jump right into it. So with a quick recap of last week, uh, we visited Fran in Maine again, and she was staying at a nearby hotel where she received four phone calls, one from a friend who is going to allow Franny to live with her and her roommate in New Hampshire. The second was with Jesse, her boyfriend, essentially ending their relationship. And the last two were from her father, Peter. The first was to tell her about Carla's health, and the fourth was to tell Franny that Carla's health took a turn for the worse, and she was on her way to the hospital. Apparently, Carla was not the only one in a gun quit to come down with a dangerous flu bug. And then we went over Chapter 21, which was a very short chapter where Stu Redmond has been transferred to the Plague Center in Stovington, Vermont, and he is uh, planning his escape. He sees the writing on the wall. Uh, He knows he is now expendable because uh, there's nothing that his immunity is telling them. And things are going downhill very, very quickly. So now we jump ahead to chapter 22, which takes us back to General William Starkey. And he is visited by Major Len Crichton. Starkey is still looking at those monitors. And I think every I think every chapter that he has appeared in, at some point he's looking at these monitors. And the monitors, of course, are looking into the biological weapons facility. Um, where they developed and accidentally released uh, Project Blue slash Captain Trips. Crichton is, um, he's aware that Starkey has been living off of um, uppers, essentially, for the past week or so, and he's kind of waiting for the inevitable crash. But Starkey has just received a phone call from the president, quote, that grinning, glad-handing sack of shit who has relieved Starkey of his duties. Creighton is now the one in charge, and the president wants him in Washington as soon as possible. Starkey gives Creighton some advice, though. Um, He says to let the president chew him a new one, essentially, to just take it and say yes, sir, because in Starkey's mind, they've done what they could. They've salvaged everything they possibly could. And Creighton agrees and believes that the country ought to get down on their knees to Starkey for everything that he has done for them. Starkey essentially thanks Creighton and tells him that he couldn't have done any of this without him. And then he tells Creighton what his top priority should be. He tells him to see a man named Jack Cleveland as soon as he can. Cleveland knows who they've got behind both curtains, iron and bamboo. Cleveland will know who to get in touch with and what he needs to do. 
And Creighton is is confused by this. Uh, he does uh, he doesn't understand what Starkey is talking about. Starkey explains that Captain Trips is out of control now. It's everywhere. Even um, there's some new tentative cases in Mexico and Chile. Starkey says when they lost Atlanta, they lost the three best men equipped to deal with the problem. And I assume he's talking about at least two of the three. He's talking about Denninger and Dietz, at least. Um, but Starkey is not specific in who he's naming. I believe that they're probably dead at this point, like most of the Atlanta facility. He tells Creighton that they actually injected Stu Redman, Prince, his code name was Prince, if you guys remember that, with the, um, with the virus, with the super flu. They told Stu that it was a sedative, but they injected him with the virus. Stu's body fought off the virus and killed it. They have no idea how it happened. And Starkey thinks if they had six weeks, they might be able to figure it out, but they don't have that much time. Um, Now, the imperative thing to do is to make sure no one knows that this situation was created in America. They do have men in the USSR and various European countries and some in China. And Starkey tells Creighton to tell Jack Cleveland, Rome falls. Creighton seems to know what this means, and he wonders if they'll actually be able to do it. Apparently, vials of Project Blue were sent about a week ago. Their people overseas believe that the vials contain radioactive particles to be charted by their sky crew satellites, and that's all they need to know. This way, if things get worse, and they will, no one will ever know that the super flu originated in America. No one will know that Project Blue was infiltrated and that this is just some um, new virus, some new mutation. And you know what? Maybe some will suspect, but by then it'll be too late. Creighton says he understands. And then Starkey begins to talk about a book of poetry that his daughter gave him by Yeats. Although Starkey calls him Yeats, but Creighton is not going to correct him. (laughs) Starkey says, quote, it seemed as if that man was describing everything I dedicated my life to, its hopelessness, its damned nobility. He said that things fall apart. He said the center doesn't hold. I believe he meant that things get flaky. That's what I believe he meant. Yeats knew that sooner or later, things get goddamn flaky around the edges, even if he didn't know anything else. The end gave me goosebumps the first time I read it, and it still does. I've got that part by heart. What rough beasts, its hour come round at last, slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. Then Starkey tells Creighton that the beast is on its way. It's on its way, and it's a good deal rougher than that fellow Yeats could have ever imagined. Things are falling apart. The job is to hold on as much as we can for as long as we can. The two men shake hands, and both are fairly teary-eyed as they say goodbye Uh, We get the feeling this is going to be the last time they see each other. Starkey says he has business to attend to, and he takes off his wedding ring and his West Point ring, telling Creighton to make sure that his daughter, Cindy, receives them. Creighton promises that she will. They salute one another. Starkey leaves, and we follow him. Uh, He leaves the building in a jeep. He goes through a gate that is marked high security zone, no admittance without special clearance, There are still soldiers manning the turnpike toll booth. Um, These toll booths are bulletproof, but they were not germ-proof, and they are dead. 
Uh, Starkey sees that they are mummifying in the heat of the desert. So that's a beautiful picture to be painted right there. Uh, Starkey stops and enters a block house. And there are more guards inside who are also dead. He takes another elevator down into the ground. And when the doors open, Starkey is hit by a wave of decay. The air purifiers are still working, but it's impossible to get rid of the smell completely. When a man has died, he wants you to know about it. There are several bodies on the floor, but Starkey continues on his way. He is very careful not to trip or step on an outstretched leg or arm. He said, You didn't want to scream in a tomb because the sound of it might drive you mad. And that's exactly where he was, in a tomb. It looked like a well-financed scientific research project, but what it really was now was a tomb. The elevators behind Starkey close and it starts to ascend. So apparently when the project's integrity had been breached, the computer switched over to the emergency procedure, which means that the elevator would not open underground unless somebody from above keyed it to do so. So it's kind of morbid because the dead bodies in front of the elevator had been people hoping that the computer would mess up the switch over from um, the original procedure to the emergency procedure. Um, But it hadn't. And they had died down there waiting for that elevator. So Starkey passes some more bodies. Um, He comes across two dead bodies, uh, a man and a woman who were naked with gunshots in their heads. Love among the viruses. There's another dead body of a man propped up against a door. And he has a sign tied around his neck, but his head had fallen forward, blocking what the sign read. So Starkey pushes the chin up and finds that the sign reads, Now you know it works. Any questions? This is where Starkey begins to cry because he doesn't have any questions. I think they've all been answered by now. He heads to the cafeteria, pausing once to read every announcement on the corkboard outside of it. A bowling league, non-denominational services in the cafeteria every week. There's someone giving away puppies, someone needing a ride to Boulder. You know, very simple, everyday things um, showing him that these dead bodies had once been real people with real lives. Starkey goes inside of the cafeteria where the smell is worse because not only do you have decaying bodies, but you have rotting food. And if you haven't guessed where Starkey is headed by now, you have to remember Frank Bruce, the man who died with his face in his soup. Starkey had become mildly obsessed with watching Bruce, um, Frank Bruce, on the monitor, and now he was there to see him in the flesh. He pulls, this is, this part kind of grossed me out a little bit, but he pulls Frank's head from the bowl. Um, Well, he tries to because the soup has congealed around Frank's face. So the bowl lifts with Frank's head and this kind of horrifies Starkey who knocks it off. And then he begins to wipe the soup from Frank's face with his handkerchief. Frank's eyelids are sealed shut by the soup um, and Starkey leaves them be because he's afraid that they might fall back into his skull if Starkey opens them. And more than that, he's afraid that those eyes won't. And he will see, um, he's afraid of what kind of expression he'll see in Frank's eyes. So instead, he places a handkerchief over Frank's face. And then he leaves the cafeteria. He goes back to where the man with uh, the sign around his neck, he goes back to him. 
He sits down besides, beside the man, and he pulls out his gun, and he puts it in his mouth, and he pulls the trigger. In the bowels of Project Blue, there was silence. In the cafeteria, Starkey's handkerchief came unstuck from Private Frank D. Bruce's face and wafted to the floor. Frank D. Bruce did not seem to mind, but Len Creighton found himself looking into the monitor, which showed Bruce more and more often, and wondering why in the hell Billy couldn't have gotten the soup out of the man's eyebrows while he was at it. He was going to have to face the President of the United States soon, very soon, but the soup congealing in Frank D. Bruce's eyebrows worried him more, much more. And that is the end of Chapter 22. So Starkey has been relieved of his duties by the president, and they've put Creighton in charge, although I think at this point it's a little too late for any kind of major change. Nothing's going to happen. Creighton's not going to be able to do anything that Starkey wouldn't have been able to do. But essentially, Starkey has one last order for Creighton which is to contact this man who will contact his people that they have planted in various countries overseas. These people were sent vials of Project Blue a week ago. So it sounds like they had a plan B, and this is plan B. Or maybe this is plan C or D, who knows. (laughs) Um, But they are, basically, they're going to release Captain Trips overseas to mask the fact that it originated in America, and that we were responsible for it. So basically, they're going to sacrifice the entire planet to cover their asses. And it it's going, and you know, even if they hadn't done this, it might have eventually spread over there because they were already getting cases in Mexico and Chile. Um, and then who knows who might have flown, um, who already had the, the disease and flown overseas since then. But... This is going to make sure that it happens and that it happens quickly. And this case, Starkey is basically dooming everyone. And it reminds me of the last chapter with Starkey when he talked about the massacre in Milai and how the higher ups back then tried to keep it quiet to protect the country's good name. And that's exactly what Starkey is doing now. He is condemning the rest of the earth to death. So no one will realize that America created Project Blue and that America unleashed it. And yes, it was it's campion, but still, essentially, the blame rests on um, the shoulders of the U.S. government and the Army. Creighton agrees to do this as well, which is even more frightening because Creighton has, you can tell in these chapters, Creighton has really looked up to Starkey and respects him. And he's basically willing to just be a yes man to Starkey, even after the fact, even after the president has relieved Starkey of his duties. Starkey plans on committing suicide, but first he drives out to the base where Project Blue, you know, had been developed. And he is driven by this need to see Frank Bruce himself rather than just watching him in the monitors. Starkey is overcome with emotion when he enters the research facility, um, but he finds Frank pulls his face out of that bowl of soup and I suppose Starkey wanted to let Frank rest in peace with some dignity. Um, He shouldn't have to spend eternity with his face in his lunch as his body decays and he wipes Frank's face mostly and leaves a handkerchief over it before leaving the cafeteria. And so it's interesting to me but not surprising that Starkey couldn't rest until he'd gotten rid of that soup bowl. (laughs) Um, It's strange that the things that drive people, 
um, towards the end. And it's as if that had to be his one last act as general and a human being before he sat down and shot himself. And he chose to do it beside the man with a sign around his neck that read, now you know it works. And okay, so Starkey feels responsible for Project Blue um, for what it's about to for what is about to happen, um, but rather than face it like a man, he kills himself. I'm not sure if he would have been infected with Captain Trips or not. I didn't see any sign in these chapters that he was sick, um, other than continually popping his pills. I didn't really see any sign that Creighton was sick either, but it probably would have happened. And it's horrific the lengths that he took to try and keep Captain Trips under wraps. Um, he ordered people to be killed. He ordered towns to be quarantined under the guise of something else. Um, And even that couldn't contain the virus. And now he gives orders to infect the rest of the world. He's not giving anybody a fighting chance. And if you ask me, he is a piece of bleep. (laughs) He is a cowardly person. Um, Creighton seems to be the, you know, like I said, Creighton is the guy to blindly follow. And he know we know that he'll follow the order to contact Jack Cleveland and give him that fatal code, Rome Falls. So, you know, what I found interesting, though, was Starkey quoting Gates. What rough beast is our come round at last slouches towards Bethlehem to be born? He tells Creighton that the beast is on his way, its way. Obvious foreshadowing to the dark man, the man with no face, that Stu saw in the corn, that Nick felt behind him in his dreams. And I don't know, did did Starkey have a premonition? Did he dream of the beast, the dark man at some point? He has been coasting on pills for a while, so maybe he hallucinated or maybe he's just referring to Captain Trips as the beast. So he ends his life in the building where it all began. And there is some really disturbing imagery here. The dead bodies of the people waiting to see if by some miracle that the elevator system would malfunction and allow them to escape. The man with the sign around his neck kind of resigned to the fact that he was going to die, but making sure that the people in charge uh, understood their role in it. The man and the woman who were naked. um, Starkey seems to think they had been intimate before he killed her and then himself. And more than that, just people who died almost instantly in the cafeteria, um, in the middle of whatever they were doing, where they were eating. And it's a tomb, as Starkey describes it. And now he's buried there as well. And that's the end of General William Starkey for us. But we're going to find out that his premonition, if that's what it was, was right. Because next week, we finally meet him, the beast, the dark man, Randall Flagg has quite the long, terrible history, and it's going to be a really fun chapter. So I hope you stick around. And that's it for this episode. I have a short episode. I know the last couple have been somewhat long. I can't say fairly long because, you know, less than an hour, I think that I'm doing pretty good. So if you want to contact me, feel free to send me an email at thecirclecloses at gmail.com or on social media at The Circle Opens. And if you're enjoying the podcast, you can leave me a rating and review on iTunes. And thank you for listening and keeping me company on this journey through the stand. I hope that you are enjoying it as much as I am. And that's it for today. So M-O-O-N, that spells, see you next week.